0: Rejoin us now in the Levity Zone Tour Down Under throughout Australia back in January 2015. We now present the second part of the Sydney Serenade, held hidden away in an artsy, speakeasy warehouse. In this talk, I ray-trace a visionary beam, first traversing the crystalline structures of Endo, then diffracting through the exuberant growth of civilization passing through ancient Australian zircons to the origin of life and completing our photonic journey in a glint off Incan foundations in the Andes. The crystal sphere then went out to dance by moonlight and found itself in a Gaian dialogue with the local Lukuma. Shaken by the roar of the human hunger that is consuming the world, they both look to build a 500-year runway to the stars. In the end, the beautiful monkeys, the greatest creation of Gaia's tools of evolution, turned the serpent to the favor of their future. So, matey's in the back. Do you want the second half of the tail? The hot tail is coming your way. The cold tail, now what does tail mean to an Aussie? What does that mean? I've heard that said, but I haven't gotten any interpretation. Huh? Is it a cheeky thing? Huh? You can chase tail. You, you can tell tales. What's that? Tell a Take chase a tale. What Australia brings to the world is a directness. What did we see on the back of the vehicle driving into Campbelltown? I am the Stig. <laughs> like, there's this no, uh, people sort of admit what they are and politically correct things just go out the window or never landed here in the first place, which is refreshing, I can tell you. So, where we are going to go is into what i think of as the future but i'm going to bring it to you as a very personal story if you don't mind so this is a combination of what i do in my practice what i call endo but it's also a combination of what i have discovered uh, in the magic of the elixirs the elixirs are my term for things like ayahuasca and I generally have stayed away from this stuff. Why? Because I had this machinery or this very delicate crystalline kind of read-writing system that I could point at stuff or the light and it would come through the crystalline structure and write things for me. So it, when I was 18, I was using this structure to write models of how to move around the solar system you know i was drawing them out and sending them into institutes august institutes in the east of the u.s you know and waiting hoping for letters back this is the before email of course 1978-79 i was trying to come up with you know the concept was at that time you know you drew a big peace sign on your house and that was your statement that You wanted to do something for the whole planet. And I thought, you know, the local ecologists would meet and they would fight the parking lot and and whatnot. And yet, our town kept growing. They built a bypass around it. This is the town in Canada I grew up in. The shopping centers continued to grow. The ecological folks came and went. The parking lots got built anyway. So as a teenager, I thought, we may be doing some things better, but our civilization is on a full tear forward. The motivation is consumerism, more than one automobile, a bigger house, having a kid, and a kid in the seventies, you know, we had to have bell we had to have bell bottom jeans, we had to have Adidas, we had to have disco balls you know stuff like that we had to have lots of record albums and I looked at this pile of crap that I accumulated and I thought future children are going to accumulate even more big piles of crap than than I have accumulated so I couldn't see anything that was going to stop the juggernaut you know despite all the best intentions that came out of the 60s and All this belief, I thought, no, human civilization is is going to girdle the planet in steel and glass and asphalt uh, in a century. I mean, we are going to just develop, it is just not stopping. It's like a crystal that is growing out. A crystal is growing out into all the available solutes and forming this new structure. So I thought, okay, we've got to aim higher. We've got to aim higher than that because if we're going to do it, we're going to eliminate all the green. You know, remember when I first asked you the first question, what did you see from orbit 300 million years ago? And it was mostly green continents and blue ocean. We're now eliminating all those green spots. We're replacing the green spots with what I call the Azure. The Azure is a crystal that is blue right it looks like your cell phone screen it looks like the blue of new apartment buildings in sydney and everywhere else the blue glass beautiful sort of pristine color but it's doesn't have a lot of depth it is reassuring because it's modern and clean and all that but the emerald is suffering so think of the the human civilization as like a, a brooch and in the center of the brooch is this giant growing azure crystal and on the outside, ringing it, are these little dots of emerald. And the emerald is soft and multi-green colors. But those little emerald dots are getting smaller and smaller. And they become more and more precious as they, get, as they dissolve, as they disappear. And rich people can go to them. So you have the cloud forest in, in Costa Rica, which is protected. And it's protected because it's a sane country. But right next door in South America, you have millions of hectares being cleared and slashed and burned, right? Of the same kind of precious biosystem. I go there once or twice a year, and the last time I went was October. And in this year, we got to Pucallpa, which is this booming town. It looks like Nebraska 1864, with gold miners and, uh, you know, Illegal loggers and agricultural workers and people on the make 300,000 people in this grid in this Roman grid in the jungle And they ride around in three-wheeled motorcycle taxis called motocarros So we take our motocarros to the shaman's dwelling we then take uh, Taxis with smashed windshields. It's be like going to Alice Springs, right? Just a really freaking bad roads and we drive for a day to a little town called Kurimana, which is even rougher. These places are truly rough. I mean, Campbelltown is like the height of luxury compared to these places. But um, then we, this year, it's like, oh, we're not taking a canoe anymore to go four hours up a small tributary to get to our place where the shaman has set up in a pristine rainforest. We're now going on a barge. All the canoes are out of business. Why? Because the barge is taking you across the river because they built a pipeline road for gas pipeline. And all along the pipeline road is burned jungle, this torched jungle burned by locals who are making, who are homesteading and claiming the land and they're gonna run cattle on it. And so you go and, and you realize this jungle is now burned and being agriculturally developed to within now 45 minutes of where our sacred medicine place is. It's like creeping up. And that was just two years. Two years the jungle went like that. Our human activity went closer and closer. So it's incredible. It's happening incredibly fast. So we are just doing it. So what I do is I have sort of two tracks in my life. I'm saying, to myself, the reality is we're gonna girdle the planet in glass and steel and asphalt. We're going to become even better monkeys at making food. I don't think we're going to go through a big crash. We're just too damn good for that. We're just too damn adaptable. The last chance for a huge crash was when there were 35,000 nuclear warheads primed and ready to go. That was the chance to really destroy our planet, you know, in an hour or so, but we didn't do that. The the spear-carrying manic male that came out of Africa had to set down that spear, the thermonuclear warhead. It was just too mad. So we're in a new era. So what has happened since the end of the Cold War? China. Any of you been to Shanghai before 1990 and look at Shanghai today? It's just breathtaking. The speed, a billion people move from rice paddy villages into steel and glass azure apartment buildings and a consumer like a billion people in 20 years. This thing is going fast. So my question always was, you know, the same question as Kurt Vonnegut, where he said, what are people for? (laughs) Did you ever read that? That Kurt Vonnegut asked, what are people for? Well, they're partly there to have a beer. I know this is Australia, so I'm going to have another bit. But this is a Japanese beer. I I was two weeks ago. I was in Japan presenting a model, a new model for the origin of life. This is a good segue. Somebody, there's some biochemists in the audience. So I've used my endo techniques plus a little bit of the elixirs to work on the following problem. How did life begin on the earth? Or if it began somewhere else and was carried here, how did it begin on some earth? And I used these techniques to do visionary, Einstein called them Gedanken experiments. And his Gedanken experiments in you know 1904, where he said, I am in the patent office, doing my late night work but I'm going to close my eyes now I'm going to start to think about physics and I'm going to have my strong coffee as you could get in was it Basel or wherever he was and I'm going to imagine that I'm running alongside a train and then I'm now the train and I'm the train's light that is beaming forward and now I'm a photon on that light beam and the photons coming into contact with photons from an oncoming train and is am I experiencing the oncoming photon at twice the speed of light or not? And these were the thought experiments. These were the endo that Einstein was doing. And then he would put that in his system. He'd go back to writing his, doing his patent work, you know, reviewing people's patents, you'd call them here, I guess, I don't know. And then suddenly in a few days, boom, he'd have an insight. He would go back into the world and it would be shown to him that space changed or something happened that gave him his miracle year of 1905 where he came up with these theories in one year. So in the last year, I've been doing the same thing. And the first thing that I tackled was the origin of life, working with my colleague at the University of California, Santa Cruz, who had done incredible work. He had basically got a piece of the Murchison meteorite that fell on Murchison, Victoria, right here in Australia in 1969, one of the most famous meteorites. Bits of it were cut up, as it was an important meteorite, and sent out. And Dave got a piece of it. He scraped the piece, put it into solution. And what did he see? The building blocks of life. And he said, life built life in its building blocks came from space a long time ago a long time ago so that's Australia's contribution and there are many I mean Australia is so old the oldest little zircons the oldest crystals that preserve atmosphere tell us what was in the atmosphere or what wasn't there wasn't oxygen so I've been working on the model for the origin of life now actually since I was 14 I started, but in the last I'd say two years it's accelerated, it's like it's time and suddenly uh, December 30th of not last year but the year before 2013, I sat down and I became the molecules in the little hot pool and I became the trillions of protocells moving in a cycle as the pool dried down and filled up again and dried down and filled up again And those little protocells were experiments in nature and they contained random junk. And the random junk got better and better at being not junk, but being helpful to the bubbles that they were in. And I saw the whole coupled phase cycle. I thought, oh, this is it. This is the first end-to-end scientifically plausible, I would say, model for how you started from simple little solutes like amino acids and lipids in a warm pond and you go all the way to the great achievement of molecular evolution, a bubble that's floating around, a little key lock mechanisms operating in it that duplicates the contents, the brains, the smarts, and then pinches the bubble down so two daughter bubbles occur occur, and they don't pop and they do the same thing again and again and again and you have the lines and you have life. So that all came from that Experiment that thought experiment. That's now gone through two levels of peer review, and it went to... Uh, before coming to Australia, Dave and I did a talk at the SETI Institute, which is... It's a hive, a swarm of astrobiologists and people who study signals from other planets and things like that, and you can see this whole talk online. In that setting, I'm wearing a different skin. You know, I don't... What, I wouldn't necessarily show up for work you know like this uh, but uh, you what one of the things Terrence McKenna used to say was don't load any cultural operating systems culture is not your friend you know and he would go on to say don't load Catholicism 9.0 or New Age nitwit 1.1 <laughs> But then, what do you load? What do you load? So, my whole takeoff, you know, the long conversations with Terrence while he's still alive is like, no, Terrence, I load all the operating systems to take a look. You know, so I, I load science as an operating system reductionist, hardcore, monastic chemists. Chemists are about as monastic, reductionist, hardcore people as you can imagine. You got to load their operating system. You speak their language. You stand the way they stand. You do your talks the way they do their talks. It's great. It's wonderful. They have a practice that is so successful that it has given us the modern world. It's worth loading their operating system. Then I go to Pentagon think tanks. Now I'm in acronym land. I go to NASA think tanks brainstormings and i'm in nasa land and you wear logo shirts you know johnson space center ames research and You wear your baseball cap stand in a certain way you complain about certain things like the continuing resolutions and where the budget is screwed up again and you know you, you just so that you're one of them you know you load that operating system i go to my friend's evangelical church and I load his, their cultural operating system, and that is the most powerful energy moving through you, like the energy of Jesus. And then I put that on aside, and I go to another place and load another cultural operating system. I call it a form of my techno, cultural, uh, idiotic, uh, but uh, hilariously funny shamanism. So they can go in and out of these places, you know. Is this the Bruce? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you'll have to figure that out, won't you? <laughs> I go to Pakistan. We have uh, a team that I work on, and the company that I helped found has 250 developers in Islamabad, right? So that's a whole other scene. It's a country under attack. You know, it's a country with drones and B-52s and, and incredible violence, but it's a country full of clear-eyed, look-you-in-the-face beautiful people that have incredible purity. It's a country that's been held back from the rampant commercialism of, say, that India is taken over by, right? Or that neighboring Iran has taken over by. Pakistan is in this time warp of little country stores and tiny little Sufi mosques, and then it has the, the huge thing of Saudi Wahhabism crashing down like a spacecraft, you know. And I went into their cultural operating system. I had a tailor come over, and he made a fantastic, you know, I had my chupples, I had my roll cap, and I had my whole Pashtun outfit made, you know, with my baggy pants and my long, beautiful material, brown sort of gown. And I could walk through the markets of Islamabad, you know, you'd come, people would think I was a Pashtun. You know, I had my hair tied back and whatnot. Blue eyes, fair skin, they think you're a Pashtun descended from Alexander the Great that came from the Northern Territory. I would go up to the Northwest Frontier Province and talk at universities. But when you walked through into the Marriott Hotel, past the guys with the big machine guns, and the biggest shotguns I have ever seen, right? These guys who are ex-army, they wear these blue uniforms and these caps, and they look up at you, and they go, wuh Salam And there's such love, and there's such... Because the Pashtun, I mean, I'm an imposter, but the Pashtun is so respected. And I try to feel, you know, the respect for the Pashtun too, and I say, Wuh-salamu Wu-le- uh, salam." You know, and I'm not Muslim, but I want to feel what it's like for them. And wearing my kurta on Fridays as the engineers and the women are going out doing their Friday thing and respecting what they do, and watching how the engineering teams break five times a day to go pray, and realizing, oh, this is so much seder. We're in this dull, endless meeting, grinding away on open source module X to such and such protocol Y, and their phones all have a call to prayer app that goes, And we go, yes! (laughs) And they're going up and what are they doing? They're breathing, they're bowing, they're contemplating, and they come back and they're just beaming. Like there's so much better engineers and like I've just had my tea and everything. But it's like, this really works, you know? So, we can't, until we step into the shoes of all these cultures, we can't say anything about them, truthfully. You know, after you do this for a while, you just can't even say anything. You know, <laughs> you just can't say anything. So that's a huge diversion of where I thought I was going. But does that make sense? It's a levity way of seeing the world. So I, it's a loving and accepting way of, of loving the cultures and not feeling separation, because what does Eckhart Tolle tell us, what does Krishnamurti tell us, what do all the teachers, what does the Buddha tell us, That's separation between people is the worst thing. We moved out from the ball, remember the insectivore ball that we were all in? That was tight. If somebody was gossiping on one side of the ball about somebody else, they heard it. <laughs> so. I know in a small Australian town, it's kind of like a ball probably in terms of gossip. But we had tight closeness once, and we had it for tens of millions of years, and we we lost it. Now Here you are all sitting pretty close together, and that's a good thing. The culture tries to separate us, our, our inventions separate us. Our workplaces, the cubicle, the automobile, the pension plan, remember the uh, the takeover of Eleusis, the pension plan, and your individual financial thing that you're struggling for is the result of the takeover of Eleusis, right? The kingdom of heaven, you know. What do they call it? Super annuities here or something like that? What is it? Huh? Super annuations. Maybe there's no annuity to be found <laughs> in the end. But there's always beer. Let's get another one here. So that's all background to what I'm going to tell you next. So I was in Peru in August with a man named Dennis McKenna. And Dennis McKenna is the brother of our beloved bard, our beloved dubious but beloved bard, Terence McKenna. (laughs) Ask me more later. but I was there with his brother, and we were in a beautiful retreat center. And I left the retreat center, and I decided to go with the Quechua. And the Quechua are people, this is amazing, guys. They walked down five hours from where they live, which is at uh, 5,000 meters in the Andes. Where they live is these kind of weird rondavel huts. And they, they live on potatoes because potatoes came from the Andes, and grains, and guinea pigs. Guinea pigs are the main source of food, of, of meat proteins. We went to a school of Quechua children, and there's this shed where the guinea pigs are like born here, and they're going over here, and there's an oven on the other side. <laughs> guinea pigs are really productive. They're called kwee kwee, kwee and they end up on a stick, and that's your lunch. <laughs> Anyway, but that's that's their chickens. So these Quechua elders are coming down and I was in a coca ceremony, and I watched these guys. And it wasn't the ceremony they were doing because they put the coca leaves, which are their stimulant, right? The, the coca leaf is what built Machu Picchu and a million miles of terracing that fed 18 million people in the Incan empire with a 30% surplus every year. The Most brilliant agriculturalist ever to feed people. Everyone wanted into the Incan Empire because of this. Their water systems are still working after 500 years, no maintenance. It's incredible genius. But anyway, the Quechua were never reached by the conquistadors, these high Quechua. They were never colonialized, never monetized, never catholicized. So they're original humans. When you meet an original human that's not been through <clears throat> that whole process, they're so different. So they're coming down, they, they put the leaves together into the ceremonial bundle and I was watching them like, well, this surely is very serious, you know. They, they make the pattern, they show it to us, then they wrap it up and they toss it in the fire and they start laughing, ah, it's done. And I watched them bumping into each other, constantly laughing, constantly moving and I thought, they're like Wookiees on the earth. They're like the Wookiees of Star Wars. You remember those teddy bear things that were all just like that, and they they had a funny, laughy language? I found out that Quechua was one of the languages that Lucas used for the Wookiee language. Ewoks. Oh, Ewoks. I got this wrong all this time. The miniature Wookiee says the same. The Ewoks, the Wookiee was the big guy, right, that worked with Harrison Ford and just complained all the time. Anyway, uh, so the Ewoks, and I looked at them, and I, they don't live in mind. They're coming from joy. They're as children. The joy is is constantly coming up. And then they say goodbye, and off they went, you know, climbing back up. But they're sending their children to school so that they can go to university and get jobs in the tourist trade, right? They're putting their kids into the glass and steel matrix. So it's like I'm going into with this and then that night I took a little bit of the elixirs that these people use, which, you know, you asked me about that later. It's not an illegal thing there, it's a culturally project, protected activity. I took the elixir and then I went out. I felt it overtake me. And my practice has always been endo, but in the last two years I found If I take the very smallest amount of something to add to my endo it doesn't slam me to the ground it doesn't put me through the dishwasher or the meat pounder I can have a dialogue with it and then what I do is I bring endo up so I start up my endogenous system this whole crystalline structure as this very small amount of the elixirs of this 6,000-year tradition comes in. And I've later, I've since learned that this is actually the way the shamans do it. The shamans take very small amounts because they don't need the the pounding energy. They don't need to be pushed through the wormhole every time. They need to be sensitive to nature and to the environment and the people that are with them acutely sensitive so my shaman said just take what I take which is this, this little amount so finally I found my right measure and that night this was what happened so there was a full moon it was last august it was this incredible august moon that had not come for 50 years let's take a bit of a drink here So we were in a building, but there was a shaft of light constantly beckoning me out. What I've learned to do in these states is everything that comes to you as a sign, like a shaft of light, a small sound, a waft of air, you pay attention to it. Remember the endo way is to become the little crystal sphere, turn off language, judgment, figuring out, list-making, memory. Turn it all off. So I go into the crystal sphere, and then what you go from there is every sign that is sent to you, you follow it. You, you don't use your reductionist critical mind of, oh, that's just uh somebody dropped a plate somewhere. No. In that state, the dropping of that plate is a guide to you. Everything counts. So there's this shaft of moonlight constantly coming. I couldn't get out of my field of view, so I, I stood up. And I went out and nobody else was going out they were just sort of sitting there and then I noticed there was this immense tree it was called a lacuma tree and these are incredible trees they have incredibly good fruit that you can't really get here I don't think I was walking in front of this lacuma tree because I was beckoned by the tree once you see the tree well, you're beckoned by it and then there was shadow all these incredible patterns of shadow on the grass in front of the lacuma tree so that's the next thing you're noticing and you're not really noticing that's the thing you were sent as so i said those patterns look like a dance i am going to dance in the shadow so i start to go into the shadow and find my way to dance because you're moved to do it you're sent the sign you do it this is actually how the shamanic way works. This is how we used to live for hundreds of thousands of years when we were attuned. So I start to dance and then I come up to the tree itself and then I notice that it's all covered with knobs. I said, those knobs look like they're they're kind of air portals. That's the idea that came to me. So you act on it and say, I breathe then. And I breathed in, and I felt the air coming from the tree, and I breathed out and I felt the tree pulling in the air. And I breathed in, and the tree started to come alive, and the tree started to become an entity. We were breathing together, and suddenly the tree said, still your mind. And the tree was gone and there was a bare ground and there were brown hands on the bare ground. And it was the pre-Incans planting the tree a thousand years ago. And then the tree reappeared. And I said, thank you for surviving. And she said, watch this. And she was growing through that thousand year period and there were fires coming through, floods coming past her super fast, just boom moons coming over battles being waged the pre-Incans falling and the Incan civilization rising a temple was across the river and then suddenly it was gone and then the conquistadors came and they were going clank, 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 clank in their their armor heading up toward Elante Tambo in the Sacred Valley and boom, 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 boom boom, and then a drought and then the highway and then boom the retreat center built around the lacuma tree and it felt safe, it felt secure, because a beautiful woman named Carol Kunas had decided to build a retreat center. The last 20 years of this tree's thousand year life is surrounded by chakra gardens. So it's a pretty amazing place. And I said to the tree, thank you for surviving. Thank you so much, because you know, how often do these trees get thanked? You know, not often. And the answer came to me as I stepped back, sort of almost did a bow to the tree to thank you profoundly that you can maybe teach us something. And she said to me, I am the last survivor of my kind. I am the last. There are no other like me in this valley. And the valley is the sacred valley of Peru. Now what's about to happen to the sacred valley of Peru? They're building an international airport just over the hill from Tambo and the Peruvians are buying up the land like crazy. So what's gonna happen to that valley? Jumbo jets coming from all over the planet that don't have to go through Cusco. Cusco is too high up, the tourist is sort of, they drop, they fall like flies in Cusco. So you'll be able to fly from Frankfurt or New York or Sydney to, to the Sacred Valley. That'll change everything. The jumbos will be flying over this tree. that's coming to an end. The peace of that valley is about to be shattered. But it was five in the morning by this time. And suddenly there was a roar on the highway, which is only about, say, a thousand meters away. And it was a truck. And I could see in this truck an Incan guy, you know, who was fully a part of you know, the acclimatized Inca driving a fuel delivery at 5.30 in the morning trying to make a few extra soles for his kids and his family. And then the, the lacuma tree turned to me and said, Oh, that's the sound that's eating the world. That's what's eating the world. And I felt every limb and every part of this tree falling in despair. And I turned to the loquimetry and said, it is, you are right, that is the sound, and that is the first truck of thousands today that is coming through the sacred valley. the roar, this hunger that is eating the world, and I felt that the whole Gaian, you know, entity sag in that moment, just loss of hope and hopelessness of being consumed. The little emerald dots getting smaller and smaller and then I turned to her with my work on the origin of life said what can I say to this entity at this point <laughs> what do you do to instill hope and I said to her I can tell you something it's a way forward and it's going way back you learned as a living system, how to ride the chaos of the molecular storm. Four billion years ago, four billion years ago, there was only the molecular storm. Then life's molecules learned how to surf it, like at Bondi Beach. We, they learned how to surf the ultimate chaos. They turned the chaos and entropy of the universe into this incredible thing called life. They really did it. They made it happen. Life did. So I said to the Lakuma tree, I said, Mother, you have to learn to surf this chaos, this chaos, this power. See it as your power. See it as your energy. Because if you can learn how to surf this chaos, it will take you to the stars. And suddenly the Lakuma tree came to a full sense of itself and said, I have something to tell you I have something to tell you you are my greatest creation you are what it's all about you are the way that we want to do the ultimate prerogative for life which is to make another you are the mechanism and you are beautiful but what is the way forward and I thought to myself I'm going to do two things I look down at the shadows and because I'm a shamanic kind of techno-cultural operating system geek, I said I will dance again in her shadows, and I will move out, and I will tell her a story through dance, dance for consciousness, consciousness through dance, through movement, gets you out of your head, you know. The head's a kind of a, you kind of end up in a cul-de-sac in the head until you start moving. So. I danced along one of the shadows of her limbs, and I said, what I'm dancing for you is a teaching about the monkeys, about us. And what I'm dancing right now is what a corporation is. Why is that Incan driving that truck at five in the morning to make the delivery? He's part of a corporation, an oil company, and he's doing it for this reason. And all we have to do is figure out how to shift the direction of this this thing, which is like a pseudo-life form called a corporation. You have to shift it a little bit, make it a little bit more sustainable. Now I'm gonna dance over here, and I'm gonna dance into another key line, the manic monkey, the psychopathic monkey, the sociopath, the power brokers, the power winners. We have to shape them. And I gave the example of Putin. So there's this guy who lords over a very big part of the earth. But three generations back, his forebears were able to do massive destruction. A man named Joseph Stalin had complete impunity to do what he will. But this new man, Putin, can only do so much. His teeth are shaved off. He has the same motivation, but he is controlled and limited. So we are already limiting the power of the manic monkey over here, like the Nordic peoples the Vikings did with the Berserker Kings a thousand years ago. We shape that slightly. We shape all these other things slightly, and we buy ourselves 500 years of runway, more runway, where human beings do the crystalline thing. They take the green away. They leave the emerald dots. So I then ran an endo-vision. And this is where I'll leave you. I said to the Lacuma tree, watch this mother. And I built an endogenous vision of the spacecraft that I've designed with my colleague at the SETI Institute. And it's a spacecraft that comes out, approaches a comet or an asteroid, does its little station keeping, and then extends a balloon around the comet, a thousand-ton object, 3,000 tons. Remember the Europeans went to comets? They went to the, the Rosetta mission? Fantastic stuff. So we find a comet, we extend our balloon around it, seal it, put gases in it, stop the rotation, then we can control it with wafts of gas, like a sailing ship. And then we heat the gas, and then we melt the comet. We take those jets that were coming off, We put the gases into our tanks. We turn them into water, carbon dioxide, methane. We turn them into valuable things. We turn them into the building blocks of life itself. Then we move the whole thing to somewhere in the solar system. We move it into Earth orbit. We move it to Mars orbit. Suddenly, humans can go anywhere in the solar system. They can launch a little spacecraft, refuel, get everything they need and then go to Mars, refuel for the return trip, fuel their lander and keep down to Mars, multiple places. It totally changes everything. So this is the architecture I started developing in 1978 when I was in high school. It's now come to full fruition and it's going to be in the media in March. And I'm just told today that I'm doing a TEDx talk in April on this. So what does this do for us, what does this do for the lacuma? So I presented, I said, mother, this is what I've come up with. We talked last time about how we have bacteria in Mars rovers, the bacteria are alive in the Mars rovers. So we've already moved life to Mars. But this is a way to move a lot of life into the solar system. And then she came back to me and she said, all right, I will show you something turned the thing around and, and showed me the spacecraft coming into Mars orbit the human astronauts taking filling their tanks with cometic water and she showed me the astronaut filling their cup with some water from the comet and taking a drink and she said when that guy when that astronaut takes that drink that is me taking that drink I unfold in the vacuum of space, and I will face the naked sun, alive. I am on the move. I am doing what I am supposed to be doing, which is propagating life off of this birthplace to other places. It is what it's all about. And i sort of like, whoa. As I was crossed over, I was in space myself, and this tree was unfolding, facing the sun. And I said to her, can you help us get some funding then? (laughs) It's a long haul. So that was sort of the end. Um, I came back very motivated, feeling very beautiful, feeling like if I could tell this story to you, and in March, space.com will tell it with a documentary with animations done right in Melbourne, by the way beautiful animation showing this incredible thing happening. Then I'll go and see Elon Musk at SpaceX. Then I'll go and talk to anybody will have me, the Chinese. NASA rejected our proposal, by the way. So they they didn't select, we proposed this to them, but it sort of stumped the rocket scientists. They were like, oh my God. It's the weirdest spacecraft design for the 21st century. And we'll roll it out a little bit more for you, and then I'll finish. So these shepherds, we call them shepherd the the name of the spacecraft, they can do all this stuff. They can capture a comet. They can melt the comet down into a a bolus of water with a nucleus, and we can put life forms in there. They're farmers. We can capture a nickel-iron asteroid and put carbon monoxide and fraction out nickel just with gases. And all this stuff and suddenly like oh my god i went to this greatest endogenous trip i've ever had and this is last this christmas a month ago and i started drawing like crazy And it was like the drawings i did when i was a kid but this time they were for real this time they showed the breakout of life you know that humans could be could make happen then inevitably we might and when we do that we do that sustainably. We do that, and we learn how to make biospheres. We learn how precious our biosphere is. We develop whole new philosophies, whole new religions, whole new perspectives as we start to occupy our solar system, and we are just opened. And so the monkey mind that started with the, you know, the snake and the bolus of uh, tree sap. The mind has gone this far, and it has used the serpent, and it was not the victim of the serpent. It still had vision enough to jump, and it jumped off of the earth and found a new home and did what the mother said, you are great, my greatest creation, and you will take me to the stars. It gives us a little bit of a purpose, what, what people are for, perhaps, one of the things. So with that, I think we are out of time. And thank you for the Carbon-Based Life album. I love this new album. This album was actually the album that I ran like a 1,000 times as I was trying to imagine this whole architecture. So this is the very song. See how things get set up that, that triggered my brain into the origin of life and into the space stuff. So with that, I'd like to really thank you. and. Uh, for your kind attention and uh, the good, good Aussie warm welcome, and hope to see you on a subsequent tour. And uh, thank you. incredible. Um, I really thought we'd have time for questions, but Bruce, you just talked for over two hours. (laughs) I think if anyone has questions, we might just have to do that privately with Bruce afterwards. We can stay and have a bit of a conversation. But um, part of the reason that we did all of this tonight, particularly in this way, is that it is actually Bruce's birthday today. And so... To you. Happy, Happy birthday, birthday Bruce Dama! Happy, Happy birthday, birthday to you. To you. Thank you everyone um please stick around for a while we're gonna have some more music you can have a slice of cake at the back um yeah just a quick thanks to matt for painting this incredible painting for all of the musicians and vjs and everyone who's made food and helped out tonight thanks a lot and have a chance now just to relax and have a chat and thank you for putting together a stellar beautiful event thank you so much The only things which travel well from there to here are ideas, and I'm not an artist, so I couldn't paint. So this is a possibility idea. I think there are millions of these kinds of ideas swimming in these possibilities, okay. Thanks again to Vince Polito and Sydney Evolver for hosting and emceeing the evening. The good folks of Create or Die Studio, DJ Richard Barron, a.k.a. Sensac, and a special acknowledgement of Craig Brown, a.k.a. Slinky and Snootus, for the wild photography used for this episode's cover art, polished up as usual by Jacob Amon.